Alright, hello and welcome Reinforced Running Podcast. What's up? Today we have Alec Blennis, who is an extremely knowledgeable coach when it comes to strength, when it comes to endurance, when it comes to mixing the two together. He has a lot of awesome insights. So we talk about a lot of stuff. So this is what this one is for the nerds. I hope the nerds are out there and are excited to hear about some training content because that's what we got for ya. And he actually is proof of his actual knowledge as he is the Murph World Record holder. So he's also an OG OCR athlete on the original Spartan Pro team. So he's been around. He's, he's competed at the highest level. He's put out some really cool performances. So we talk a lot about uh, we talk about Murph since it's coming up. Uh, Memorial Day, and we talk about uh, hybrid training. We talk about high rock stuff. So a lot of great content here. I think you will enjoy very, very much as I did. Also, if you're looking for a little bit more high rock specific type of training, check out a recent video I did on YouTube about the sled push, some different techniques, some pacing, some training stuff. So if the sled push is something that gives you issues for high rocks, we got a video for you on YouTube. Check that out down in the show notes. All right. Here we go, Alec Blennis. All right, we're on. We got Alec Blennis here. Alec, what's going on, man? Thanks for joining me today. Not a whole lot, man. Um, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to do this. So uh, we have a lot that we can touch on in terms of training when it comes to the hybrid space and just kind of like nerding out with just general training talk all around. I want to touch on some CrossFit stuff. Uh, and that kind of leads me right here because you're kind of like a, uh, an OCR OG, but you've kind of moved into more of this hybrid space now with, with strength and conditioning. And in particular, you have the Murph world record, which is, pretty, I do, which is pretty <laughs> awesome, man. So I do want to talk about some, some Murph training. Uh, it'll, it'll be here before you know, it's we're, we're recording it April 4th and you know, people are going to do uh, Murph in what, like six, seven weeks or something like that. So I think now is a good time to kind of start to talk about that conversation to get people prepared. So are you going to do it this year? Yeah, of course. We're uh, a little over seven weeks out. I got the countdown on my training plan. I'm, I'm gearing up. Um, there's not a lot of things throughout the year that I really get super, super focused on or excited about because for the most part, I kind of let what, what I enjoy and that kind of thing just kind of drive my training program. Uh, but the Murph is always one of my favorite workouts of the year. So starting about two weeks ago, I kind of set up a, a special training block for it. So just dive into that. Super excited. I always love the preparation, love the event. Such a great time of year. The I'm, I have mixed feelings about it, right? Like I think someone who, cause now, cause he yeah, had started kind of in, you know, it's, it's a hero workout from, from the military, it kind of bled into CrossFit, right? And, and people who are doing CrossFit, I think are going to be a little bit more prepared just to kind of do a workout like that, just with that type of volume. And then uh, CrossFit kind of bleeds into OCR. And I'm sure now with like DECA and uh, High Rocks people, they're, they're, they're going to be very familiar with that as well. And I don't think it fits into that type of training as much just based off of the sheer volume of things. So I have a bit of a love hate about like with this workout in particular because like to me it's almost like another like a huge effort that needs to be prepared for outside of like a race schedule so like if you have someone like that who is wants to do this like where's the first place that you would direct them toward like how should they prepare themselves without like doing kind of like a complete block for it yeah yeah you know it really depends on where you're at uh, just in terms of overall conditioning, overall strength, body movements, and that kind of thing. Um, I know plenty of people who just have the fitness level that they could walk out any given day with, with no notice. 
do emerge um, with, with very little difficulty and feel pretty good afterwards. Um, likewise, there's plenty of people who are, are super fit, just in a completely different way, uh, that emerge would absolutely wreck them, just mm-hmm. volume-wise. Uh, so depending on the type of volume you're putting in, uh, especially with some of the strength stuff, uh, Murph could feel very differently for you, and you're going to need a, a very different amount of conditioning. Uh, so if you're the type of person that does a lot of, say, heavy lifting, you know, your strength program is like 5 by 5 type of stuff, or heavy barbell lifts, and you're not doing a lot of higher volume, whether hypertrophy work, or muscular endurance work, calisthenics, etc., cetera, uh, doing some stuff to prepare specifically for the Murph so the volume doesn't wreck you is probably a good idea. Uh, if you find that you're the type of person that's already doing some of that kind of stuff in your, your programming anyway, you could probably walk onto a Murph and, and do just fine. Uh, so it really depends on what your current programming looks like. So say it's for someone like, because <clears throat> that's what I was saying, like a CrossFitter, they can probably do it, right? In any given day, you know, they're doing whatever, 50 thrusters in a workout, like loaded, like they'll probably be okay to do 300 air squats. Like they probably won't kill them. But for like an OCR athlete who might just be doing a lot of trail running and maybe some sp- specific strength stuff like you're talking about, maybe they do five by five, five through run, five through one or something like that type of programming just to keep their base level of strength high, but maybe their volume in the gym isn't as high. Like what would that look like? Like where would you kind of put that yeah. person? Yeah. Um, you know, even still, I find within OCR, especially there's such a wide variety in terms of how people train. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of OCR athletes that are out there just doing those long trail runs. Basically, they, they do some strength training in the gym, and then they go out and they get really good at running, and they just kind of put it together on race day. Um, at the same time, I know a lot of OCR athletes who do a lot more of that like Metcon-style conditioning, um, you know, very running-centric in that sense of maybe doing some air squats or lots of walking lunges and then burpees and running and that kind of thing. Um, so if you're the type of OCR athlete that's doing that kind of training, you know, doing those walking lunges, burpees, running kind of mixed modal workouts. Um, Murph is probably going to be something that you can prepare for a little bit more quickly. Uh, but if you're that person that's doing a, a five by five, five for you one, just kind of basic strength work and then running separately, um, you're going to want to take some time to kind of put the pieces together. Um, as far as the, the body weight stuff goes, the load is pretty light. Even for someone that's not super, super strong, an air squat is not moving a tremendous amount of weight. Um, so I don't think you have to be all that strong to do Murph very well, you just have to get the muscles conditioned to handle that volume. So just practice, practicing the movements, getting good at it, and being able to run you know, after 300 air squats is, is a special talent. Yeah, that's a whole different thing. That first run, no problem. <laughs> that, that second first run, run no way. problem, but that's where, uh, that's where a lot of people mess up. You know, I think so many people think that they're, they're good runners and they are good runners, and they go out and they, they run like a, a 5K pace mile to kick off the Murph, and then there's just no coming back from that. Uh, Where do you, so in, in your attempt, when you were getting ready for it and you're kind of looking at all these pieces, like figuring out, what was your time? Uh, my time was 32.41. 32.41. And that was, that's with the 20 pound weight vest and unpartitioned, right? Right, right. So unpartitioned for those listening that are unaware just means that you can't break up the reps at all. So you got to do the one mile run straight into the 100 pull-ups with, uh, without mixing anything up then the 200 push-ups, then the 300 air squats, and then that second one mile run. Because if you do like Cindy or something in between, like 20 rounds of Cindy, that's like not that bad, but unpartitioned is very bad. <laughs> it's very, yes. very and it's, hard. And it's a totally different stimulus too, because I've, I've done Murph a, a wide variety of ways, right? I've done kind of Cindy style, partitioned into small chunks. I've done unpartitioned. I've done weight vest versus not weight vest. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I find when you partition it kind of Cindy style, 
you don't get a break at all, right? You're going mm-hmm. like 5, 10, 15, 5, 10, 15, just constant movement. And you keep that cardiovascular stimulus up and you're basically redlining the whole time. And it's, it's very, very painful in terms of that, that stimulus. But when you do unpartitioned, you have to take breaks. I mean, you can't just go 100 unbroken pull-ups and 200 broken push-ups. So you have that time where you're just like sitting there, you know, I was like on my hands and knees staring at the ground, like, okay, just 10 more sets or whatever. Uh, and it, it becomes much less that cardiovascular stimulus in the middle portion and just that muscular endurance, like mm-hmm. how long can, can, especially your chest and triceps hang on. That's the thing for me. It was, it's the pushups. It's just like, I like everything is like drop back down. My respiration rate gets lower. My heart rate's probably down. And I'm just like, staring at the ground, hoping I could do like three more pushups or something, especially with the weight vest. The weight vest makes it it a whole different thing. So when you're looking at it, when you're getting prepared for your, what's an appropriate first mile then? So even with, and how are you figuring out like the effort level for uh, a loaded um, mile run, like with the weight vest, like, are you taking what you could do for a 5k and then just say like, adding uh, 10 seconds per mile, or are you actually testing with the vest for running? Or how do you figure out like where, where, where's an appropriate place to be so that you're not putting yourself underwater, like as soon as you start? Sure. You know, I, I have to thank Hunter McIntyre for uh, doing some of the work for me and making some, some mistakes that I didn't have to. Uh, <laughs> he had, he had previously held the record and I watched his attempt and, and his video uh, and learned some lessons from him. Um, so when I, I watched his effort, I believe he came out and did that first mile and like, you know, the ballpark of 530 to 540. Yeah, I think uh, so. Ripped the pull-ups off really quickly. And I just, I watched him fall apart on the push-ups. Um, and I could, you know, almost see the frustration in his face when, when things got, start getting tough really quick. That kind of like, oh shit, I went out too hot kind of kind of look. Uh, so after watching that and thinking, you know, 20 pounds is relatively light for Hunter compared to me, he's got a lot more body mass. Mm-hmm. So I'm thinking that if a guy like him is running a 540 mile or so, I probably shouldn't be running, you know, that fast or much faster. Um, so my initial strategy was if I can just go really conservatively on that first mile and bank on making up time on the, the body weight stuff, that's going to be my, my only hope for actually you know, doing a better time. Than him. So that's what I did. Um, sorry. I, I did a six minute mile to start. My goal mm-hmm. was just to, to get on the pull-up bar by six on the dot. Uh, which, you know, feels conservative in the moment, but as soon as you start doing those pull-ups and realize how out of breath you actually are, it's like, okay, I'm, I'm glad I didn't go any faster. Right. And that's, and are you looking at it from how long it's going to take you in general? Because yeah, if you do two, say you do two, six minutes, that's 12 minutes of a 32 minute workout. You're still, most of the work's being done in the gym. So are you thinking of it that way? Like the run, I mean, even if you hammer it, like say someone's nuts and could do like a five fifteen or something like that. Right? right. And they can like, and they can like handle it and get back into the gym, but like, they're probably going to give back a lot of time when they're in there for the 20 plus minutes that, that they are. Um, when did you feel like the workout was like real? Cause if you're going conservative for that first mile, I'd imagine at some point through the pushups, pull-ups or somewhere where you're like, okay, now it's time to really start to kind of hone in and push a little bit harder. Where was yeah. that? And then that like 32 minutes. Yeah. To me, it's, it's walking a very, very fine line between what, what feels like very manageable and just completely, completely blowing up. Um, so to be honest, it's one of those things where 
at no point did I feel like the workout was was that challenging, to be totally honest. Mm. But just speeding up even a little bit could have quickly turned into a, a catastrophe. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, when you're riding that like razor's edge of like muscle fatigue, especially in the push-ups, it's like the whole time I'm thinking, okay, I feel good, but if I speed up too much, it could all be gone. You know, so it's just this kind of anxiety of I I feel good, should I go faster? I don't want to blow up because uh, it's it's so easy to do in that kind of workout. Yeah, right. <clears throat> and like knowing where that's gonna be, because you're right. I mean, it's like I always break everything down to like running. <laughs> like I look at it at the time domain, I'm like 32 minutes, like a 10k, right? Like it really shouldn't start to be awful in a 10k until probably the last like two miles or whatever. And that's just doing right. one specific thing. So it should be like fairly conservative all the way through. So for you, it's like at the air squats, at the end part of air squats into that last run where it's like, could you blow up on the last run? Like maybe, but if you get there and you're not blown up, it's not that long. You could just like make it, you know? Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> And, so, and when I did it, the, the last run was a little more painful than I had anticipated based off of um, some of the practice I had done. And to be honest, I'm not exactly sure why, because I had done a lot of, of practice workouts of doing, you know, 100 air squats into a, a quick 400 or 800, a bunch of repeats of that. Uh, but something about the actual event day, doing those 300 air squats that second mile, when I started to take those first couple steps, I was like, Oh my God. <laughs> like, I know I got the time as long as I just have to do this in like sub eight and a half minutes and I got the record, but I don't even know if I can, like, I just wanted to vomit, you know? Uh, so that was a, a struggle just to keep moving. I just kept reminding myself, like, you don't have to do anything crazy. You don't have to run a sub six minute mile here. You, you literally just have to run an eight minute mile and you're fine. And I think I, ended up running running a, a seven. I think I ran like a seven, seven fifteen or something like that. Uh, and it was really that, first lap after the, the squats was just like trying not to vomit um, and just getting my <laughs> legs moving again. And then I was able to start getting my, getting my stride back a little bit. Well, you figure it's something you've never done before, right? It's something no one's ever done before. So it's like, you could do all the things in practice, but there's a level of exertion that was happening that day that you couldn't really prepare for. So right. you said that where and, you know, to that. be honest, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not like a workout vomiter like i've never actually thrown up in training i know a lot of people get that sensation pretty easily i always say like i'll, I'll pass out before i throw up kind of thing mm -hmm. uh, so that was a very special feeling coming off those air squats and like i think i might throw up on camera right now like <laughs> this is awful <laughs> uh, so held it together okay though <laughs> that would have been the most epic blow up just like three yes. laps down <laughs> you had it you had a bit of a cushion you probably could have made it you probably would have made it either yeah. way <laughs> So leading, leading into it, like, are you simulating it? Are you, have you was, and that's another thing. There's like a, uh, like I said, like you hadn't been there before, but there's a way to kind of be like race familiar. And it's, you know, if you're racing something short, like a five care, a mile or something like that, it's really hard to like nail it on like one go, like after mm -hmm. maybe like three or four over the course of, you know, six weeks or something like that, you'll probably be like a little dialed in even, even in things like CrossFit where you do a workout on did you do the open workout on Friday and then you do it again on Monday. You just know how it's going to feel, you know? So you're like prepared for that moment where you're like, okay, I know this is where it kind of went sideways. If I can just push a little bit more, you're like ready for that feeling. Were you doing that for Murph too? Were you getting, were you trying to put yourself in that position where you were going to feel that ultimate fatigue? Like were you doing 200 pushups in a row just so you knew like where the, where the line was and how to kind of break things up? Like how often were you like, doing the demands of the event. Right. Um, I'm doing that a lot more this year. So 
last year uh, as Memorial Day approached, I knew I was going to do Murph, uh, but I honestly had no intention of, of going after the record. Um, I've been doing some workouts like, okay, I know I got Murph coming up. I'm going to do some calisthenics and running. I, I think I did Cindy a couple times, uh, but I wasn't thinking about it all that much because to me, it was just another Memorial Day. I was going to do Murph uh, like I always do. Uh, but then I started thinking like, maybe I should try to like go after Hunter's time. So I, I watched his video, saw what he did, saw that his time was like 34 minutes or something. So I kind of just did some quick mental math of like, you know, how quickly should I have to do each thing to, to stand a chance at doing that? Uh, but again, I had no intention of actually beating his time because uh, I've competed against Hunter many times and I've never actually beaten him at anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was like, why would I beat him at the Murph if I've never beat him at anything else? Uh, now my my claim to fame is I almost beat Hunter one time at like a, <laughs> a super strong, you know, like and that's pretty good, and seventeen or something. Uh, that's not bad. So I was yeah. like, you know, <laughs> it's like why why would I beat Hunter this time? So uh, I ended up doing Murph on Memorial Day uh, just for fun with it, with uh, my gym, and more or less like virtually tied his time. I think it was like five seconds off. I was mm. like, oh shoot! Like I had no idea that I I was even capable of doing that. Uh, to be fair, Murph is right in my wheelhouse. Like I'm, I'm short. My rep range is, uh, or my range of motion is pretty small compared to his. I got a lot, a lot of things going in my favor. Um, mm. So then I'm like, okay, I got to coordinate a real, real effort attempt. So I scheduled one three weeks out. So I had three weeks of really specific practice to get things out and a little bit better. And with that, I was able to take two more minutes off. Um, so this year, I'd like to take another two minutes off. My goal is to break the 30 minute barrier. Yeah. Um, so I actually got to take off two minutes and 40 seconds. So I got some strategies on how to do that. I'm doing a lot more more pacing, a lot more specific preparation this time around. Um, so I, I started nine weeks out uh, with mm. kind of a more specific program this time in, in hopes of getting under that 30-minute mark. Yeah, because that's the thing with like Hunter going after this record. It was like a good – something that was familiar that a lot of people have done. But he's, he really isn't built to do like a that fast of a Murph. You know, right? <laughs> like he's yeah. he's fast and he's strong and he has good endurance, muscular endurance. But like he's pretty tall, he's pretty big. So and that that's that does matter in that workout for sure. Yeah, makes a huge difference. The the one thing that he has going from that I don't, of course, is a twenty pound vest is not as heavy for mm-hmm. him as it is for me. You know, he's around two hundred pounds, so that twenty pound vest is just ten percent added mm-hmm. on. Uh, I'm closer to one sixty, so you know. So a little bit heavier for a guy my size and for him, but again, I can I can go through those push-ups and air squats significantly faster just being five foot six versus you know six feet tall or whatever he is. So when you're you're looking at your specific planning, your eight to nine week plan for for Murph, then how how is that going to deviate from your regular programming? Is every workout going to be built around? Uh, like how to improve Murph, whether it's your easy days doing like aerobic work or something like that, or, or how much is it just going to be specific, uh, like workouts for your quality sessions, say, or, or your strength sessions, are you just going to bump up the volume? Like what's that look like? Is it all kind of comprehensive? Sure. So, uh, for the last couple of years in my programming in general has been much more biased towards the strength side of things, uh, than the conditioning I'd say, you know, since I kind of fell off the racing circuit in like 2017 or something my conditioning has largely been just kind of maintenance and staying in shape and luckily maintaining fitness is a lot easier than building it. So mm. without doing a whole lot of work, I've, I've stayed fairly fit in that regard uh, and just focused on getting a lot stronger. Uh, and during this nine week buildup um, to Murph, my strength training is not changing all that much. I'm decreasing the volume a little bit just to allocate a little bit more energy to the conditioning side of things. Uh, and it's really just the conditioning running 
that whole side of the program is very much geared towards Murph. Um, so for my strength plan, I lift six days a week. I do a lower push-pull split. So I have leg day, like a chest, shoulder, tricep day, a back and bicep day, and then I kind of do that two times in a week. Um, and then on top of that, I'm layering several Murph-specific workouts. So for example, today I had, uh, with the weight vest on, a bunch of calisthenics and 400-meter repeats kind of stacked together. Uh, so I was doing a full workout. It's actually pretty darn simple. was 50 lunge jumps, so jumping lunges, immediately mm-hmm. into a 400-meter run at my goal birth pace and then two minute rests and did five rounds of that. Um, so nothing too fancy. Like the workouts are, are pretty simple. Um, but you know, I got nine weeks to, to ramp up the intensity and, and just focus on getting a little bit faster, accumulating a little bit more volume. Because it is specific though, right? Like that workout in general is like, okay, I need to make my legs as fatigued as, as possible in a short amount of time and run at a pace that I know is where, where I need to be. So the specificity is like right there and eight weeks is about that. Like that's when you're going to want to do that kind of stuff, right? Like, so what, right. what is, is there going to be, so do you already have like your Murph pace targeted or is it like, if I can then get my mile pace or what do you think? Like five, it would, your 5k is probably more indicative of what your Murph pace would be, right? Like you train toward five or 10 K. Yeah. Yeah. 5 K or 10 K and realistically, you know, accounting for the weight vest and that kind of thing. Uh, I'm probably starting off at like a 10 K race pace mm-hmm. sort of thing. Um, and then second mile of course is just survive. Just, <laughs> more don't or less. just do it. Yeah. Um, but in terms of like shaving off the time, you know, I would love to break the 30 minute barrier, um, which means I got to shave off two minutes and 40 seconds. Um, I know that I don't want to run too fast and risk blowing up. Um, and I know that I haven't made significant strides in my aerobic fitness since last year. So I don't think it's a good idea to try to run much faster if, if any. So I'm actually planning on running that, that six minute mile again, or maybe like a 550, 555, um, to hop up on the pull-up bar at six minutes again. But if I can take 40 seconds off of each of the four remaining sections, so say 40 seconds on the pull-ups, the push-ups, the squats, and the second mile, um, that would give me my two minutes and 40 seconds that I, I want to get is there time there? Like, is, is that real? like, where's the time then? Is it just break time? Um, so for example, um, my pull-ups last year, uh, pull-ups, the one I actually don't remember, um, as well. I had kind of some issues with the bar wobbling a little bit, bit threw off my original. You were outside. <laughs> yeah. What? Yeah. I yeah, was yeah. outside and, uh, the rig was a little bit shaky. I had some people trying to hold it down, uh, which just causes, you know, energy leakage and that kind of thing. Got in my head just a, a little bit, um, and then, of course, I could hear Matt Davis announcing, uh, you know, I don't think he's going to make it or it looks like he's having trouble here. And I'm like, shut up, Matt. Like, I'm doing fine. <laughs> um, but so I think my strategy um, last year for the pull-ups was like 10, 10 pull-ups every 24 seconds or, or something like that. Um, for the push-ups, I'd originally targeted 10 every 15 seconds. Um, and I did that for the first half of the reps and was feeling really good. Knew I could potentially make up some of the time that I had lost on pull-ups with the wobbly bar. So I sped up to, I'm sorry, five every five every 15 seconds and then sped up to five every 12 seconds for the second half. Uh, and then the air squats was just unbroken, um, trying to maintain a pace of about 50 per minute, uh, which mm. got a little bit slower than that. In the it's pretty fast. Was seven minutes. Yeah. yeah. Um, so pacing stuff that I've done this year, um, I'm trying to get, pull-ups down to 10 every 20 seconds uh, and trying to get push-ups. Actually, I'm targeting a different approach. I'm going to try to do 10 reps every 20 seconds just mm-hmm. so it's not quite as many total sets. Um, doing really small sets of five does save your your chest a little bit. 
but it's a lot of just getting up and getting down, getting up and getting down really, really quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas sets of 10, I think might give me an extra, you know, an extra breath or two between sets. So I've been working on, on pacing that out um, successfully so far. Um, that pace is feeling really good right now. Uh, and I'm just trying to be able to get through those squats a little bit faster too. Hmm. Yeah. So that's just going to be muscular endurance work essentially. Right. And just, and, and maybe yeah. speed on the pull-ups, like just, is that a little bit more technique on that? Like how are you trying you to know, the, dial the, that the in? pull-ups are, are kind of interesting. Um, cause when you're coming, the, the pull-ups are right after the, the run. So you're a little bit more gassed, obviously at that point. And a good butterfly style pull-up actually doesn't involve, you know, a lot of, a lot of musculature. Um, mm-hmm. you know, you're using your lats, you're using some of the, the upper chest actually, um, Bicep. Hips, all that yeah. kind of stuff, biceps. And it's a, it's a lot of muscle mass going into that, um, moving a lot of weight. So I find there's actually kind of a, a conditioning piece of that just in terms of like overall breath control mm-hmm. and that kind of thing. Uh, Cause it's kind of hard to, to keep pace in those butterfly pull-ups when you're out of breath. Um, so you're just getting better at staying on pace with that while, while winded. Uh, by the time I get to the push-ups, you know, breath is back under control. You're not really tired. It's just straight muscular endurance in the chest, tries and shoulders. Um, and then the squats is both that muscular endurance piece, but starts to feel like cardio again, mm-hmm. uh, of just making sure again, can I maintain breath control? Um, cause once you start losing that breath, uh, or you start having to hold your breath a little bit to get through reps that start to feel a little bit more challenging, your heart rate just skyrockets. Um, so the more you can stay relaxed, just breathe through it, uh, the better you're going to be able to run afterwards. So on the push-ups, are you, cause I mean, you could do, you could do push-ups like push-ups and training for me are just like boring, you know, <laughs> like, it's yeah. just like, <laughs> you can do so many and it's like, where's the line? Like how, like how to adjust like your volume and your intensity with it. Are did, do you find that, you know, doing work that's going to overload it, you know, bench press, whatever it is, um, is, or like, just like weighted push-ups, like, is that what's more helpful or is it the volume of the push-ups yeah. themselves? That's a, that's a fantastic question. One of the trickiest to answer. Uh, I think one of the reasons that I was able to do so well on the Murph is the push-ups themselves. That's where I mm-hmm. have made up the most time compared to other people that have done it. And I think a lot of that just comes back to my last couple of years of training has been a lot, uh, big emphasis on physique. Um, so actually training chest for chest growth, as opposed to, you know, take Hunter or take a lot of CrossFitters that have done it. There's not a lot of chest training that goes into CrossFit. It's a lot of mm-hmm. overhead, a lot of Olympic lifting, um, so, you know, as far as like being a well-rounded athlete go, goes, I'd argue that a lot of CrossFitters are, are underdeveloped in the chest, um, where I was not. So that gave me a, a huge advantage, I think, in just the, the overall pressing. Um, you know, for example, bench press, I weigh about 160. Uh, my current bench, one rep max is about 300. Um, mm. So benching close to, to double body weight, which, granted, there's people that can bench a lot more than that still, but, you know, close to a double body weight bench is, is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a standard push-up, with the 20 pound weight vest, um, I figured is similar as, as benching about 75 to 80% of my body weight. So it's, it's similar to like 115 pound bench press or so in terms of actual weight on the hands. Hmm. Uh, so, you know, for me, that ends up being about a 35 to 40% uh, of my one RM in terms of like a chest press. So at that, that intensity, you know, 30 to 40% of your one RM, you can do a lot of reps. You know, it's, it's a lot easier to accumulate a lot of volume at that percentage than someone who you know, that push-up equivalent would be more like a 50 to 60% one you know, You're going to fatigue a lot faster at that. Time. And your push-ups are only going to get so much better, even if you're doing a lot of them. You know, if you don't have that uh, high-end 
power output, like you're just, it's never going to feel less fatiguing to me anyway. It just right. always is like <laughs> the same. It's just like bumping your head against the wall. So you think that like <clears throat> just the amount of energy it's taking you to do a rep is less than what it would be for someone who has, uh, you know, a, a bench that is just body weight, say, right. Times body and weight. you know, you, you can only take it too far. So for example, if I was to, to magically improve my bench press from 300 to 400, sounds great. sounds like a really substantial improvement, but when you work out the math on that, that would then take, you know, my weighted push up now is the equivalent of say 20, seven to 28% versus 35%. And at the end of the day is, is 28% that much easier to rep out than 35%. I don't think it's going to make that substantial of a difference, you know, at the strength level than I'm at just working that muscular endurance piece is huge. Hmm. Um, but you can't, you know, you can't discount how important that just base level of strength is too. Right. Cause you're still going to have to work that muscular endurance, even if it's like, yeah, say it was, it would feel like 115 versus feeling like 105. Like if you put those two on a bench, like, what do you think you'd do? Like three more reps if you're not like right. training for it, you know? Yeah. That's, yeah. So that's, that's an interesting point. So, I mean, and that's years of training to get your, your bench to that right. level essentially. Right. Yeah. So, so right now, you know, with that push up being that 30 to 35% of one RM kind of intensity, I feel like I can get the most, most value out of just really hammering that muscular endurance piece in this final eight weeks. Uh, on that note, I've been kind of experimenting and trying to research some different different techniques to do that from, you know, just hammering higher and higher reps versus trying some like BFR blood flow restriction training mm-hmm. versus actually some aerobic work for the upper body with like a, a hand cycle or, or arms only air dying kind of thing. Um, so a lot of things I've been looking into, um, still making some decisions about how I'm going to actually peak um, for the event, uh, but got a lot of ideas for how I can, uh, you know, make the most out of that final like four to six week peak phase. It's an interesting approach to think about it from a different perspective. Like, yeah, like you would imagine if you could improve your, like, yeah, your aerobic ability in your upper body, it should help. But like, how effective is upper body aerobic training? You know, right. Like, and so I've been diving into the research on that a little bit. I think, you know, for example, if you look at the, the air squat, for example, and try to correlate it to like percent of a one RM as well, you know, I have a, a back squat, one rep max around 400 to 420 or so, uh, which when you throw my body weight onto that is like pressing you know, 500, 16 pounds with the legs. Um, whereas then the, the 20 pound best air squat is probably pressing you know, 100, 100-ish pounds or so with the legs. So it's also mm-hmm. like a 25 to 30% 1RM type of intensity, a little bit lighter than the push-ups, um, but just the the muscular endurance capabilities in the lower body are so much better. I think in large part due to being just much more well vascularized, well perfused tissue. Even um, just from walking. You know, you much better, exactly. Like you're on your feet, you walk, the, the blood supply is just so much better in the legs. Um, the part of me is wondering, you know, if I take that same approach to training the upper body, especially considering my upper body is, is pretty deep conditioned in terms of actual aerobic capabilities, there may be, you know, there may be some, some room for improvement there in terms of just like vascularization, muscle perfusion, blood flow and, and metabolite clearance. Yeah. So it's worthwhile spending time doing those things as opposed to just running, right? Where you're going to get the aerobic and the whole cardiovascular benefit, but it's, it's, it's not going to be as specific to the placement where you might need it to be for the event or right. for, or for CrossFit, for, even for that matter. Cause a lot of that is upper body endurance. Like, like you, you mentioned, it's a lot of overhead press, a lot of shoulder endurance for that. Um, yeah. So you did that, I mean, I guess, sh- 
and are you thinking just all arms in general or I'm trying to figure out like how that would like, what's in a, like a good movement. Like, yeah. how do you even, like, what well, do you do? I'm thinking of something like a, whether airdyne or arms focus airdyne, elliptical hand cycle, anything that gets you that kind of like cyclical upper body motion or your muscles. Like a speed bag and relax or something uh, like, you ever see, it's like the hand ergometer. So you just like yeah, yeah. make the, the circles on the like little hand bike kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my thought process is if, and I'm still kind of deciding what's what's going to be best. If I do five to ten minutes of something like that, um, you know, just once or twice a week, nothing nothing crazy. So really light stuff. Yeah, really light, really low volume. Um, considering that that'd be a pretty fit, fresh stimulus for me. I'm toying with the idea of that. I'm also toying with the idea of of doing some BFR blood flow restriction training just to work on the like being able to perform and and you know in hypoxic or local local hypoxic conditions. Um, so a lot of things to consider. So yeah, can we talk about that a little bit? Because I've seen those things like they're typically like straps or cuffs, right? That will cut off um, uh, blood flow and you would do some sort of exercise. And I always thought of that as more of a hypertrophy tool um, than a mm-hmm. performance tool. Uh, but I think it is used in the rehab world a little bit as well, just to kind of um, uh, stimulate uh, like a, a rush of he- oxygen rich blood flow, right? To, to an area right. that might need it. Um, yeah. so how, how does it work in terms of just in, from a performance standpoint, like how would you think that that would help? Yeah. And so a lot of the rationale behind it and how it's been studied and like the clinical rehab setting is again, like applying that kind of like tourniquet type of, of thing to, to reduce, um, fresh blood flow from actually circulating it and clearing some of the metabolic waste products, um, decreasing oxygenation in the tissue during the, the working set and that kind of thing. Uh, and what they found is that by restricting that uh, that blood flow and causing that, hy- that hypoxia, causing an increased buildup of metabolites, they're able to stimulate hypertrophy fairly effectively with much, much lower loads and intensities overall, uh, hmm. which allows, you know, say an injured person whose tissue tolerance for load is fairly low, they can still start rebuilding tissue, getting muscle growth, and getting some of those positive adaptations without needing to use a, a load that would be prohibitively high tension and potentially hinder their recovery. Uh, So it's been very useful in in that setting uh, as the loads often used in BFR training can be in the order of 20 to 30% of a one rep max kind of thing. Um, So it doesn't take a lot of weight to get, you know, fairly substantial hypertrophy. Um, More recently, there's been more research done on can we induce hypertrophy in otherwise trained athletes? So not necessarily someone in a clinical rehab setting, but say a trained lifter, or trained bodybuilder, what if we use BFR on them without work? Uh, the research is mixed, but there's actually been some pretty positive um, pretty positive research to show that even in the trained athlete, uh, BFR still has potential for hypertrophy. Uh, my understanding of it, though, is that it may be more useful in the short term than the long term. Uh, so if you take, say, a trained athlete, you may be able to use BFR for like a four-week training cycle, see some benefits from that. But if you just said, hey, you're going to do BFR forever, we might see a fairly limited useful mm-hmm. runway of how long it could be an effective tool. Cause I guess it would just be, and would it be a way to kind of deload <clears throat> the like stress on your musculature and like your ligaments and things like that? Would you still, cause why wouldn't you just lift heavy weight if you could? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So in, in terms of, again, the injured population, it's helpful for reducing some right. of that tension from sure. a performance perspective, you're looking more about, you're looking more at, increased metabolic waste and being able to perform in spite of local hypoxia. So basically being able to perform in low oxygen situations. 
Um, so when you're undergoing, you know, BFR training, the, the local oxygenation of the working muscle is going to drop um, lower than it otherwise would in normal training conditions, uh, which is important because generally in, in normal training, uh, for example, especially something like this high volume of push-ups, muscle occlusion. So the idea that when you contract a muscle and it's it's under tension, blood is not going to flow through a contracted muscle very well. Mm -hmm. um, you end up accumulating a lot of that metabolic waste, creating some local hypoxia when you're consistently occluding a muscle in a, in a high volume set like that. Um, so potentially, you know, focusing on that side of the adaptation process. So not just, you know, how much can I tolerate the tension or the load, but how much can I tolerate the, the low oxygen and the, the metabolic waste kind of thing. That makes sense in terms of a, a sport specific use, right? Like uh, for what you're doing, right? It's like, let's, right. so would you, would you then wear the cuffs for push-ups? Or would you do put like the tourniquet things on for like, and yeah. where would you, where would you need to restrict the, cause you think a lot of it would be like shoulders and chest. How you, right. do you does it still restrict <laughs> blood flow? Like how do you stop blood from getting there? Would it just be like, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so again, I, I can't emphasize enough that, uh, that BFR is a fairly like niche training we're just you know, talking. We're just we're just kicking yeah, it yeah. around. Yeah. Um, so you know, I find that there's probably very few like useful applications for where you should do this. You know, again, one being that kind of rehabilitation setting. Um, two, if you're traveling or something like that and don't have access to heavy weights, you now there's some potentially good applications for BFR. For the most part, I'd say like maybe not a not the best training tool out there compared to some other things. But again, I I am curious with with this kind of like trying to really maximize that muscular endurance in the presence of sufficient strength uh, may be worthwhile. Typically, the BFR straps with when doing upper body stuff are applied at the upper arm, with lower body stuff kind of the, the upper thigh. Um, and the idea is that by cutting off blood flow, their blood pools on the opposite side uh, of the strap. So you're just limiting how much essentially venous return you're getting from the rest of the body. Mm -hmm. So blood that would otherwise be coming back from the arms and then circulating, clearing out that metabolic waste in the chest is now getting trapped in the arm. So you're not getting that, that venous return to flow from the arm back to the chest and back to the heart. Um, so hopefully that makes sense. Just kind of- It's like, yeah, like it, it doesn't matter where, you don't have to put it like around your pack to not get it. Like if you put it anywhere, it's gonna restrict the blood flow pretty much everywhere. Right, because right. I mean, you can think about like, are we cutting off blood from, from getting there or blood from getting back? Getting back. Kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and in this case, it's it's more so the blood getting back, mm -hmm. um, the, the venous return part that's actually more significant. So, all right, switch to similar top, and we're just kicking it around. Uh, along that, with, with the blood flow restriction, if, so you're talking and, and you're talking to your sports specific for Merv, I'm thinking of like high rocks and DecaFit stuff, and that, mm -hmm. would it be useful? Because, I mean, muscular endurance piece, I think with the sleds, right. For high rocks in particular, that's something that is just, that just is killing people, right? Like you can be really strong. You can have good endurance, but that muscular endurance for that specific piece is what kind of just like throws people for a loop for the push in particular. Yeah. Do you think you, you think this would be helpful for, for that particular instance, because that is something where it might be a more hypoxic uh, environment because people get out a little bit too hard in, in the, in those events and they're, they're a bit over their head. Do you think using something like that while pushing the sled and training could be helpful? Um, possibly. Although to be honest, I'd say that that sled is pretty darn heavy. 
It's pretty heavy. For a, lot of, for, for a lot of athletes doing that, it's it's less like the muscular endurance. Um, you know, that sled is not like a 25% 1RM. I mean, people are barely able to get that thing across the floor. Yeah, maybe um, the DECA sled where you can push it without resistance yeah. too much. Yeah, the it's DECA a short sled amount is of time. Easier. Yeah. Um, yeah, the whole compromise running thing of like, you know, you see see athletes try to, to run after a sled push or any sort of obstacle for that matter. And sometimes you see people successfully complete an obstacle, hit their stride again really, really easily. And sometimes you see an obstacle just completely destroy someone. Like they, they can't come back from it. Um, and there's so many different factors that go into that of you know, what is it about a particular obstacle or lift, um, piece of a, a Metcon workout. You know, what is it about that particular movement that makes running afterwards so hard? Mm-hmm. And it's actually really complex. And there's so many different factors that go into that. Um, I think a lot of times people will oversimplify it in terms of like, it's just a muscular endurance thing or, or whatever. Um, but there's so many different types of obstacles between a sled push or a sandbag carry or some sort of rig obstacle, upper body obstacle. Um, it's, it's all very different. Um, one common denominator across all that is just the psychological stress of it. You know, a lot of times people are encountering something that is fairly unfamiliar to them. Mm-hmm. You, know, you may have maybe spending six to 10 hours a week running and all of a sudden you're got to do this sled thing okay what the hell is this how much does this thing weigh oh gosh this is heavier than i thought it was going to be and you're encountering something that you spent very very little time preparing for and just that unfamiliarity like threat perception is a super super powerful stimulus in terms of in terms of performance so when Mm -hmm. you're encountering some sort of threat like that you're experiencing pain you're experiencing stress you get tense your heart rate starts going through the roof just from that that side of things uh, it makes things very very uh, hmm. so how helpful would BFRB for something like that? I honestly don't think it'd be super helpful. Uh, <laughs> I, I think that there's a lot of other approaches, um, that we can take to, to improve compromise running beyond that. So that it's, it sounds like it's more, unless you are at the very top, right. And like, it's this, that you want to like really turn the screws as hard as like tight as possible. I'll be saying it's more just a familiarity thing, being more specific in training, that that's going to help. And I mean, I think that's the case with, with stuff like the blood flow restriction in general. It's like, unless you are like, if you're, if you're skipping right to that, like you probably need to take (laughs) some steps back first and and work on some of like the core pieces of it. Um, Exactly. And and with like the, uh, the sled and and that kind of thing, some of those like higher tension obstacles, I think a hugely underrated component of that is, is not necessarily like how quickly can you get through it, but how effortlessly can you do it? So how mm-hmm. relaxed can you stay? What percentage of your available muscle tissue are you, are you using? So when you can get back to this concept of occlusion, so a, a tightened or, or a contracted muscle blood cannot flow through that very well. If you're having to give it everything you've got just to get through the obstacle. So if you're like tensing up your core, holding your breath, using every single piece of muscle you got to get that sled across the floor, you are going to have a very hard time running after you've, basically occluded every vessel in your entire body for like four, four minutes. <laughs> for sure. um, whereas if you're, you're much stronger, you're able to say, keep your core slightly relaxed, et cetera. Um, you're going to have a much easier time. Studies have shown that the Valsalva technique, so essentially the like breath holding, creating more intrathoracic pressure, um, cuts off a lot of venous return to the heart. You get a lot of preload, heart rate jacks through the roof. Like when you Valsalva to get through a lift or an obstacle, that's going to make things that much worse. And generally that happens involuntarily around 85% of the one max. So when we study, like when people are just told, Hey, squat this barbell and we observe, okay, where does the valsalva start to occur just reflexively? 
it tends to be around that 85% threshold. Hmm. Um, so if you're trying to do an obstacle that is effectively above 85% of your maximal capacity, you are going to feel like shit afterwards if you're trying to run. But if you can get your you know base level strength high enough that anything that you have to do is at least below 85%, you stand a much better chance of being able to, to get through that and still feel halfway decent afterwards. And that's something that you talked about before where you were saying on the squats for uh, the Murph, if you're holding your breath to get through them, like that's exactly what you're talking about. Like then you're, yeah, you're, you're <laughs> needing to do Valsalva <laughs> for the air squat with that. So that's interesting. So, and I mean, I think that that will happen a lot um, with the sled in particular, because it is just this massive effort and to get the thing moving, it's like this huge thing that you have to undertake. So it's like a big breath and a push everything you have into it and staying as tense as possible just to get that thing rolling. So right. would you even, would you practice like the breathing through like, so say like you get your base level strength high enough where that's where it's beyond uh, where you're, the push ends up being below your 85%, which for a sled push, like who knows what that number is going to be, but it's just going to be like RPE, right? Just like how it feels right. for that. Um, would you practice the breathing during the pushing to see like, like having a consistent uh, respiration rate? through the push, even in the beginning, would that be a good way for you to kind of coach someone through where their effort level is on that thing? Right. Um, you know, there's a variety of kind of core bracing strategies that I find helpful. Um, you're going to have to use your core a little bit, right? Like if you just walk up and try to push the sled with like a completely relaxed core, it's probably not going to go anywhere, right? So you got to have some level of tension. Um, but with that in mind, I, I usually categorize it into like three, three different categories. A, a low threshold, medium threshold, and high threshold racing strategy. And depending on the load that you're using, depending on the activity that you're doing, you're going to want to adopt some different type of, of core racing and, and strategy. Um, at the highest level, like a high threshold racing strategy, we're talking you know, lifting over 85%, probably some level of creating intrathoracic pressure, some level of Valsalva or, or something along those lines. In terms of like low threshold core stuff, when you think of, of running, you want to have an engaged core, but you want to be fluid. You want to be able to get a little bit of rotation. You want to be able to expand the rib cage, um, fill up your lungs with air, that kind of thing. So you don't want to be over bracing and restrict that freedom of movement. And then somewhere in the middle, you have this like moderate threshold bracing strategy where you're able to create some rigidity, but also keep some movement, be able to get some air in, not rely too much on, on creating a lot of abdominal pressure because you need that um, change in pressure with each breath to kind of draw new, new air in. Make sure mm -hmm. you're able to keep getting venous return to the heart and that kind of thing. Um, so I think it's super, super important, especially once you have the strength to be able to do some of these obstacles or lifts or otherwise in the Mechon, once you're strong enough um, to do them and be able to breathe through them and not have to tense up your core excessively hard, actually practicing that of, okay, how fluid can I remain? How easily can I continue to breathe through this? Uh, and how relaxed can I keep my core? Versus I think a lot of people that kind of learn how to brace effectively in the, the context of like powerlifting or yeah. they've learned how to breathe, uh, breathe and brace um, in a gym, if they try to apply some of those same high threshold bracing strategies to a Metcon or an obstacle or something like that, yeah, the obstacle itself might feel easy. You might brace the hell out of your core and push that sled down and back in two minutes and then like pass out after collapse. <laughs> um, so just, you know, tabling that approach and realizing that there's no right or wrong way to brace the core, but, you know, I would say that the breath and your core muscles, like it's all just a, a tool and a means to an end. So there's a lot of different ways that you can go about doing that um, to maximize your performance, uh, you know, given a wide variety of conditions.
Yeah, this is an this is an interesting subject and, and point to talk about because sometimes you, you'll see that right Even crossfit's a better example because you'll see super strong people going to crossfit and then do yeah 95 pound thrusters and they're probably lifting the way you're saying with that uh heavy bracing on each of these thrusters and they sh- they ha- may have like a, i don't know 300 pound thruster if they're super strong but they're just yeah. whacked after 95 pounds doing 21 90 95 pound thrusters for that reason and a lot of strong people are coming into high rocks and they're getting just worked because of the probably because of that same thing and one thing i've been thinking about a lot with the training for high rocks in particular is like the positioning and uh and how that's affecting my breathing patterns uh whether it is say the the sled push if like i need to be like hunched over the thing i'm like having my head down and like my torso kind of crunched down just to get better position over it. Or like the skier, like where is my head down or is it up? Like, or the burpee broad jumps, how much do you think that is like, is that one of those things where you're kind of like, okay, that's a tool. Like maybe don't worry about it too much. Or is that going to be something that is going to pay off for someone long-term if they can keep the airway open and the position advantageous so that they can get that? Because I mean, that's a lot of what, this, these events are is like, how well can you keep blood moving and oxygen through right. <laughs> your muscles, uh, while doing these different demands. So are you thinking about that type of stuff very much at the actual position of these movements? Yeah, I think that can, that can play a big role. Um, you know, when you think of different positions are going to require different amounts of, of core loading. Um, so for example, if you're just trying to walk right into the sled, remaining fairly upright, your core is going to have to brace much, much harder in that case to be able to still move the sled forward. And if you're able to hinge further into it and get more mm-hmm. of like a, a strong spinal column behind the sled and, and use that to push forward. Uh, so yeah, you can definitely manipulate positions to, to adjust the amount of core tension and bracing required. Uh, again, there's, there's going to be trade-offs because different positions might be inherently stronger or more efficient, um, despite needing maybe a little bit more core bracing and that kind of thing. So there is definitely some fine, fine tuning that occurs in terms of, okay, how can I get myself into a position where I, I feel strong, uh, but I can also breathe. Because uh, you don't want to get into a really strong position at the, the expense of being able to breathe. Uh, and you see a lot of these like CrossFit backcons. So like Fran, for example, you mentioned the 95-pound thrusters. That's an example where you can get away with that high-tension bracing strategy because if you're fit, it's a, it's a two-minute workout. Uh, yeah, it's almost all anaerobic. You can almost do it. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it doesn't matter. Uh, but totally different situation when you're, you're going to be in high rocks for an hour, hour and a half, or, or however long it takes. Uh, being able to maintain that breath is, is much, more, much more important in that scenario. So um, I want to double back a little bit and talk about something you mentioned before when you're talking about your conditioning and kind of like the maintenance of things and kind of the way you're, you kind of deviate your your training to get into more strength and kind of build build that up. Um, because I think a lot of athletes are coming from it, from that background. And in particular, these hybrid events like the DECA and High Rocks, where it's like, you know, maybe they ran, people ran cross country in high school, found the gym after that. And then, you know, so they have a little bit of, the experience on both sides. So you see these events, like they're like perfect. And, uh, but then the conditioning may have fallen behind the strength. Um, and they kind of have to build that back up to get to the place where it really needs to be. Cause these are still big time endurance events, right. And Murph too, right. like 30, 30 plus minutes it's in a big endurance endeavor. So what was like the biggest challenge when you're kind of building back up your conditioning piece? And what have you found in your experience? Like is, like makes is an important piece that you, that you need to focus on and what might be something that uh, you might think is intuitive or is like a mistake you see people do when they try to build this back up. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll say first off, I'm glad that I come from an endurance background and then later tried to get strong versus the other way around. 
Same. Um, cardiovascular <laughs> adaptations tend to be much, much stickier. Um, if you get to a point of, you know, really, really extreme cardiovascular fitness, even if you stop training entirely, a lot of those like structural adaptations that occur in the, the heart muscles and that kind of thing, they stick around for, for basically life. Um, so it's much, much easier to get conditioning back uh, than, say, if you stop lifting four or five, ten years and then try to get strong again. Uh, I'm glad that I, I was going about it in that direction. Um, I found it not terribly difficult to get a, a high degree of conditioning back, and I continue to be amazed at, at how aerobically fit I still am after not trying at all for a, a significant length of time. Um, so it's, it's not too bad. Um, I think a big mistake that people make is just letting go of something entirely versus maintaining, um, you know, fitness maintenance is, is really not all that challenging. Depending on the adaptation we're talking about, you may be able to reduce the, the volume of a given stimulus by 50% or more and still maintain all of your fitness gains with, with no loss, which is pretty easy to do. Um, you know, if you're used to running 60 miles a week and you just have to maintain with 15 to 20, um, much, much better to do that and just try to hang on and maintain than, you know, give up entirely and have to start over. Mm-hmm. Uh, so biggest things, if you are, you know, facing a time in your life where you're like, I don't have the time to, to train as much as I want, or, you know, I don't really care about this part of my fitness right now, rather than just give it up completely, at least do just a, a bare minimum. Uh, and you're going to be much, much better off. I think that's something that, that has helped me out quite a bit. Uh, Cause from the time I was, gosh, 14 years old, I was doing a, a lot of aerobic work. Uh, I ran my first 50 mile ultra when I was 16. Um, you know, I was, I was putting in a, a lot of volume for, for a lot of years, probably eight to 10 years of, of pretty high volume endurance training. And then for the most part, I, I kind of stopped running um, for a couple of years, but I continued to, to ride my bike. Uh, I do bicycle commuting, so I don't drive the car anywhere. Um, so I'm putting in at least an hour a day on the bike. Um, and I think doing that for a number of years while I continue to build up the strength was a lifesaver. Um, you know, I may have, I was running sporadically, like I might run five miles here, there, probably averaging 10 miles to 20 miles per month for a couple of years. Um, and then actually, I think we raced against each other in, in DecaFit Palm Springs. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of the, my wake up call, like, okay, I need to start running again. Uh, so I got motivated to run again. I think I was like, three, four weeks back into it. Um, and then the deck of it, which I did. Okay. Like I certainly, I, I didn't make the podium. I think I was fifth place in like 34 minutes or so, which granted there's, there's faster times out there, but it's certainly not a bad time for like just been having running again for a couple of weeks after a couple of years of hardly any. Mm-hmm. Um, and shortly after that, you know, I kept ramping up my running, ramping up my conditioning. And I think two months after that, I set the Murph world record. So that was coming off of several years of, of very limited conditioning, basically just maintenance work, a lot of zone two work on the bike and, and very sporadic running. Um, so I think as long as you're doing enough to maintain, it's really not that hard to, to build back. Um, totally different story if you let it go all together though. Yeah. Cause then it's like the whole musculature of everything is you got to build that all back up as well. And that's a whole, and then just risk of injury and everything. So, and when, so when you started building back up, are you putting a focus on volume or is it again, more specific work since you were able to maintain, uh, and like you kind of found ways to maintain, right? It wasn't like you needed to do this conscious thing. It's like, okay, now I got to go on the treadmill just to maintain because I, I, that's probably why people fall off, right? They don't want to do the right. work <laughs> in the gym after their work. You, you found ways to kind of put it into your lifestyle, which is like a really 
smart and simple way to do it and, and an excuse free way to do it. You know, it's like, you can, you can yeah. figure it out if you wanted to, but when you want to get a little bit more, when say when it was like, okay, like you had the wake up call, you're like, okay, now I need to get a little bit faster. Was it just ramping up the volume in the specifics of actual running or how much like interval based stuff are you doing for, for running itself? And it's, it's been a very minimalistic approach. So very low volume, um, in large part, you because I am still putting in a lot of volume on the bike. Um, you know, in the winter, I'm probably doing six, six to seven hours a week on the bike. In the summer, that might be eight to 12 hours a week on the bike. Uh, and that's just kind of built into my lifestyle. And you know, if it's a nice weekend, I might go ride two, three hours or something like that. Um, so when it comes to adding and running on top, I'm like, I don't really have time to do another six to eight hours of, right. of run training on top of the biking and the gym work and that kind of thing. Um, so very, very time efficient. Um, intervals, that kind of thing. Um, I will, if I have a need to ramp up a long run, um, if I can ramp up to like 10 to 12 mile long runs on the weekends on top of like the, the cycling conditioning and that kind of thing, that usually is enough to make me feel, feel really good just in terms of like the structural endurance and that kind of thing. Um, so if I can ramp up again, that long run 10 to 12 miles, um, get some speed work in, get a tempo work, uh, tempo workout in, you know, I can feel really good about my running fitness with 15 to 20 miles a week. Um, and then of course I can always ramp up from there if I really want to. Um, but right now, like this week, I think I'll probably run 12 miles or so. Um, and as merch approaches, I might hit 20, uh, but it's, and it's very, very efficient, um, you know, in the context of everything else I'm doing. I mean, you think about Murph, right? <clears throat> like we talked about it being a 10 K in terms of the time domain, but it's still only two miles, you know? Right. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> the running specific part doesn't need to be, have a, a tremendous amount of, of volume in it. Um, and I'll, this is something add too, like, um, sorry. Uh, I'll add to just so people are like, Oh, well, it's impressive. But like you know, running 12 miles a week or whatever. Um, you know, I had a, a decade of, of much, much higher running volume. Um, I've done, you know, a pretty minimalistic approach for a number of those years, but, I had several, uh, several training phases of 60 to 80 miles per week. Uh, you know, I've run you know, 50 plus ultra marathons, et cetera. Um, so having maintained that you know, eight to 12 miles a week is probably not enough to, to get a lot of those adaptations, but <laughs> right. having built in the past, doing other things on top of it, um, you know, it's, it's kind of a different scenario than, than it would be for a lot of other people. You know I mean? it's, a, it's an important point, <laughs> you know, it's just like, not yeah. just like, this is the way to do it. Just run this amount. It's like, yeah. With the caveat of huge aerobic background. Um, yeah. Because that is really the, this is um, kind of going to be interesting before we popped on, I was, we were talking a little bit and it's like trying to figure out the best way to train, to get someone strong, to get them fast and to have them have good endurance, right? There needs to be, it's like an equation. There needs to be pieces of the pie that fit. And I think that that is really hard to grasp onto, especially for uh, an event like uh, High Rocks or DecaFit or um, CrossFit. CrossFit's a little different, right? Because it's so strength focused as opposed to what, what the hybrid races are going to be, where it's a little bit more endurance focused, but there's still a strength component, especially with High Rocks that like, it's hard to know where to balance things out. Um, like, what, do you have thoughts on where athletes should spend their time? Just like generally speaking, say it's someone who's coming, say it's someone, uh, let's use, cause you coach Jeremiah Mahan for a little bit, right? Yeah, like, yeah. So he's a good example of someone who ran a little bit and then lifted and then he wants to kind of put it all back together. Right. So like for an athlete like that, cause I think a lot of these athletes who are coming into this are similar to that. 
but who need to improve their running? <laughs> like just right. for generally speaking, where do you spend your time with an athlete like that? Like how, like how important is it to like, how much strength do they need? How much, uh, endurance do they need or are you working on like a percentage base kind of like because you had your murph stuff broken out by percentages right almost like well if my yeah. one rep max is this much and makes the air squat 10 percent of it whatever like do you think there's levels where people need to be for that or like i know this is a massive question yeah. i just asked you but yeah, yeah. go ahead so, and talk. I mean, true, huge huge question and it's such a complicated one too if for no other reason than like the people that we coach and the people that i work with they're not just professional athletes that are just trying to get good at high rocks. Like they're, they're real people. They care about other stuff. Right. And so I, I might talk to someone who's like, yeah, I want to train for high rocks. And we get talking and they're like, I also want to like get my summer body back. And I also think it'd be right. cool to squat this or that. And it's like, you know, most real people have a, a much more complex set of goals than just focusing on high rocks or whatever. And then likewise, everyone has such a different athletic background too. And I think that's what's so interesting about OCR in general, but high rocks too, as you see very different athletes, you know, kind of step onto the same stage and, and tackle the same event from very different sides. Um, so you might have someone that is you know, relatively weak, but extremely, extremely well conditioned. Um, I can think of a couple of examples in the, the high rocks world of people who are, you know, certainly not the strongest, um, mm -hmm. but they're just overall conditioning, multimodal conditioning, compromise running is, is off the charts. Um, and then likewise, you have people who may not be the fastest outright, but they can push that sled in, in two minutes and still feel good afterwards and be operating a, a closer to a closer to their maximal, like normal output. So is there a right way to do it? Is there a best way to do it? I think it's too early to say, like, we're still mm -hmm. so early on in the sport of figuring out like what actually yields the, the truly best performer. Cause we've seen so many different people, you know, on a high rocks podium from completely different backgrounds. Um, so, you know, I have my own kind of thoughts and opinions of like what I would want to do, but we, we have so much evidence that like, there's a lot of ways to do this. For sure. And like some of the examples, you could even say the athlete who's kind of dominating the field right now, dude, Tobias Ludwig, have you, have you come across him? The, the German guy who won the worlds last year and he just ran three okay. straight. He, he set the record two week at two weekends in a row. And then he won three races back to back to back. And he's, I can't imagine he's strong and, right. and like, he's like, he's like the least Jack dude out there. And he's just like moving stuff around, no problem. And just like kind of running sort of fast. <laughs> and like, yeah. but he's just, <laughs> just like, he's just kind of like figured out the, the pieces. And, and I'm trying to figure out that same thing. It's like how much and like how specific and how long do we need to stay specific for, for it to work. And I'm generally using uh you know, a performance template that would be traditional for endurance where it's like, kind of like what you're doing, like, okay, within eight weeks or so, like, let's really buckle down into our, our build phase. And that's where we kind of get our specific type of training and everything yeah. before that's kind of base and whatever your base needs to be, whether that needs to be strength or endurance stuff like that's where that fits all before that build and taper. Um, yeah. So that's kind of what I, what, uh, but I don't, I don't really know how to buy trains, but another guy is Dylan Scott, who I talk about on the podcast a lot too. He's also just like, not that strong, not that fast, but he just is right. able to put out <laughs> so much work and is willing to do that kind of work that like he can get on that course and crush. Um, right. He was, so, he was one of the guys I was thinking of in terms of just like, probably not the strongest guy out there, but like his capacity is just insane. 
It's huge. Right? And that's, that's one way to go about it. And then you've got, uh, you know, someone like Hunter, who I think relies a lot on his strength uh, to get through some of those things really quick. Hunter is certainly not the fastest guy out there either. You know, he's, he's bigger, he's heavier. There's plenty of guys that are much faster than him that, that have not beaten him at, at high rocks for that reason. For sure. And yeah, even got like a, a Brent Hastert who is the same way. Like he, the sled just doesn't mess him up that much. He could just do it. Yeah. And <laughs> he's fast at it, gets down, just runs. Um, yeah. Well, so what are some things that I, or go ahead. You had, I was going to, I was just going to kind of ask like what your thoughts, like what are some of your thoughts? Like where, where, where yeah. do you think this is going? And whenever I'm training any athlete for, for any set of goals, uh, rather than think about like, okay, what are the demands of, of the event or what do most people's training programs look like? Or, this is a one hour race. So what does like a one hour endurance template typically look like mm -hmm. instead of trying to, to take that kind of approach? Um, I just try to focus on, okay, this is the person I'm working with. What's holding them back. So like, what are their individual limiting factors to, to performance, which could be totally different for some of the people. I was, I was actually just having a conversation with a guy earlier today um, who was training for a marathon. His first marathon uh, was asking me for advice. And his whole thing was, he was like, focusing on trying to build up his aerobic base and you know we got to talking and, and realized that like his target marathon base is a 10 minute mile uh which is nowhere close to his like aerobic threshold like it's a, a pretty slow running pace for him he's like oh what's holding you back from going faster he's like well i get blisters and my feet fall apart my knees start hurting like okay so your your problem is not your aerobic fitness at all but you're currently targeting your, your training is geared towards aerobic fitness and and like mm. what's actually holding you back is, is structural integrity. Uh, you just gotta go so, run. Right. And so like a, a lot of times people will have this kind of, they'll make this mistake of trying to get the fitness adaptation that they typically associate with the event instead of thinking of like, okay, what is actually holding me back from doing this little bit? Uh, and kind of structuring your training around those limiting factors, um, which could be very different for everybody. Uh, and then once we have kind of, what are all the limiting factors holding you back, kind of arranging them in terms of, Okay, how can we order these from like general to specific adaptations? What do we think our lowest hanging fruit is? Um, so when we have that list of individual performance limiters and then kind of categorize, categorize them a number of ways and try to figure out how should we address these in a, a logical progression that'll get us to, to the event, I think the, the training plan kind of writes itself once you have all that down. For sure, for sure. And that's something that in in this like hybrid space that I see, it's like, yeah, it's like people just want to like, do the high intensity stuff over and over and over when, you know, they might need to build their aerobic fitness a little bit higher, right? They're like, well, I'm just dead after right. the slide. I just need my engine. They, that's something I hear a lot, bigger engine. It's like, it's like, well, you just need to like be able to do the, have the capacity to do the work. You don't have that yet. So all this work that you're doing, it's not really gonna, gonna pay off. It is something that, that I see quite a bit that people just wanted to hit that, those very specific factors and be like really high that's intensity. Common in that's common in so many sports, like, mm -hmm. especially with how, how popular, like, you know, specificity is king and like all, all these like, um, you know, adages and, and sayings about specific work being the best type of work. I think it, it has actually gotten overemphasized. Like the pendulum has swung too far in that direction of people always wanting to do like race simulation workouts and like, well, how is this going to carry over to my race? And, and people are now no longer putting in as much general work of let's just get generally stronger just get fitter, strong. like just get just get just become a better athlete uh, and then when you do the specific work later on it's it's going to pay off so much more it's going to stick it's going to work you know yeah <laughs> like the specific work doesn't work 
unless like you have that base of fitness with the strength and the endurance and the whole and the whole deal for sure. Well, a lot of the specific work is is frankly exhausting too, right? Mm-hmm. So like if you're trying to to run like a specific high rocks program day after day, like all year round, chances are you're gonna you're gonna run yourself into the ground versus if you have those periods of of coming back to just like general fitness and general athleticism. I yeah, for my own personal training, I do like high rocks work like once a week in my build phase. You know, like then that's yeah. typically enough. Just like make that one session like count and work on what you need to work on. Maybe twice on some other, depending on like what the circumstances. But usually just like once a week. That's all. That's all it really needs. Um, so what, what would you say are some of the performance limiters with these type of events? Like when you're kind of ticking them off through the head, is there only like five or six, or is there like does it go deeper than that? Like is it just like aerobic capacity, uh, general strength? Like what? Like for people who are listening, like that if they're they're not sure how to check these things off in their own head like yeah. what, would, what would you kind of go yeah, through? so there's there's plenty of like fairly general and vague ones right so we can talk about just general aerobic capacity um overall running speed and, and mechanics um general strength um some some of that kind of stuff so a lot of general and, and fairly vague factors we could talk about and then there's specific factors of like do you know how to do wall balls efficiently without mm. wasting a lot of energy um, so a lot of like the, the obstacle or station skill based stuff um, yeah skill skill based stuff which then becomes you know innumerable just because there's so many different stations different aspects of each of them um, but something that, that I see a lot of is is people will leave things completely untrained um, of like you know they work on their sled push um, and they work on something else and they work on their running but like they've never even touched a skier before like well mm. don't, it's fine it'll only be like three four minutes of the event like yes that's that's true like you're probably not going to completely lose the race or, or blow up due to, to one station but to me to leave something on the table like that is just such low hanging fruit of just a little bit of work. figure out the pacing like get a little bit more efficient at it make sure it's not too like novel of a stimulus like make sure it's something you've seen before if you can um and just focus on some of that kind of stuff um, and i think a lot of people have a lot of low hanging fruit in their training program of just like getting some of that skill and, and practice working. Yeah. Like if it's right in front of you, if it's obvious, right. You shouldn't move on to the next thing. Like if you don't have, if you're, if you're not rowing ever, it's like, you right. shouldn't like the, the advanced techniques or whatever on the pacing and the training, it's not going to matter because you're, well, and you that's the thing too, something that you haven't done at all. Like the amount of, well, take, take, this as a good example, take running versus rowing, right? Like, yeah, running makes up probably half of the high rocks overall, whereas mm-hmm. rowing is maybe 5% of it. Um, but at the same time, like, how much work is it going to take for you to get better? Probably a shit ton. Like, you're already running a lot. You've been running for years. Like, to actually get better at that is not going to be an easy task. How difficult is it going to be for you to get better at rowing if you've never done it before? I could probably give you a, one simple tip about technique, and you could be a bit better at better rower in five seconds Um, so so figuring out some of that super super basic stuff of like do i even know how to row like can i do this efficiently do i have my technique dialed in there's some things that you can work on in in just a couple minutes per week that like yeah you're only saving 10 15 seconds but like in terms of what kind of bang for your buck that gets you you know training time versus you know clock time Mm -hmm. i think it's a pretty good investment to make sure that you're not leaving so much low hanging fruit on the table. 
And it goes back to that psychological factor that you spoke of before. It's like, you're not worried about it then. <laughs> like right. you know how to, If you know what strokes per minute you should be aiming for, if you know like what the technique needs to look like, it's something you just see, you just do, you know, it's right. not something that's going to take it out of, cause it's like, and the skier too, I mean, it's becoming more and more available, but it's still like, not everybody just has access to it. That is something that is just brutal. If you don't know how to do it, if you've never touched it, like it's not going to go well. Like, even right. if you're like, <laughs> how hard could it be? It's just not, it's not gonna, it's not gonna be right. People really, and we, we've hammered on it a couple of times already, but people truly underestimate that whole just like threat perception and novel stimulus um, and like psychological stress. Um, it sounds kind of like out there or whatever, but when you are in a race and there's something you've never encountered before, like there's a, there's a stress response, there's a panic response associated with that, whether you like admit it to yourself or not. Um, so if you have mm -hmm. stuff in, in your event that you have not practiced, um, you know, it's, it's not going to go super well. So again, comes back to that whole idea of specificity. Um, doesn't mean that you have to dedicate an hour per week to rowing or skiing or anything like that. But, um, again, put in a couple of minutes, especially on the technique side of things, um, with a lot of those like short skill-based things, um, your actual fitness at them is probably not going to improve all that, that much, but your, your skill and technique for sure. And that this, the threat perception part, this is why I think OCR like Spartan races are so freaking hard are is hard. Why people can't, can't just like come into them and have fitness and have the ability to do all of it. It's just cause like they need to make so many decisions and it's always so different. Like it takes so it takes like, I don't know, 20 races to like really have any idea of like uh, to go through all the things and have everything like figured out maybe even more based on all the different terrain pieces. Right. So that, that is why I think I, that is so hard. Um, how you doing on time? Are you, are you, are you good? Yeah, I'm, I'm totally fine. Cool. All right. Um, I have a question about, uh, this is another part. I mean, this is just a, for endurance in general that people kind of talk about, worry about, and I just want to get your thoughts on just like the, the amount of muscle mass that is uh, ideal versus what's too much or like, where is hypertrophy training uh, and strength training in general, I guess? Mm, let's just stick with hypertrophy. Right? We'll just talk about muscle mass. I think it's a different conversation for talking about strength pieces. Like where is there, is there a part that, is there a point where you think that there it's too much or if there, sometimes I'll talk to people who have, you know, maybe they have had some physique training, done some bodybuilding and are already stacked with muscle. And they're like, I just need to get rid of this. And that's, that's <laughs> tough. <laughs> that, that's a hard one. Yeah. Um, but like, where is, do you think that there is a tipping point for even just OCR in general, like OCR hybrid racing, like where it might be too much, or do you think it's just, it's going to be really hard to build up that much with training like this? Yeah. Um, and there's, there's certainly a tipping point. There's certainly a point of diminishing returns. Um, I think that that point is probably exists sooner than a lot of like hybrid athletes and, and strength fanatics like myself would, would like to admit. Um, <laughs> The, the simple fact is you don't have to be that strong or that big to be a phenomenal runner. Like that there's proof of that everywhere. Right. Um, that being said, I think the actual like incremental cost of added muscle is probably smaller than a lot of like anti-strength, like peer runners, uh, but Runner also, runners. Like, um, mm -hmm. so with that in mind, like, no, you probably don't need a lot of muscle. You probably shouldn't have a lot of muscle if you truly want to, to optimize your running as, as much as you possibly can. But if you do, for other reasons, want to have some muscle, want to have some strength, 
you can continue to build quite a bit of strength, carry quite a bit of mass, and it not hurt your running tremendously. There's always going to be a cost, uh, both in terms of just the efficiency and, and cardiac output cost of moving that kind of mass, and then also in terms of like training time and opportunity cost. Of mm-hmm. What are you not doing because you're spending time trying to build that muscle? So there's always a cost to it. Um, again, I think that um, you don't have to have much strength. You don't have to have that much mass. But if you want to, you can, you can certainly find a way to make it work pretty well and still be a pretty darn good runner too. That, yeah, that's that's kind of how I'm, I, I'm, I'm thinking about it anymore. And like if I'm asked about it a lot, I'm, I, I don't want to say don't worry about it. But like, almost don't worry about it. You know, like yeah, and strength training is is good. Like runners should do strength training, right? But you you really don't have to do that much, and you don't have to be that good at it if you don't want to be. Um, yeah. If you want to get super good at strength training, if you want to put on some muscle and try to have a beach body too, like knock yourself out. Like at the end of the day, it's probably not as big of a factor um, as people make it up to be. I definitely think everyone should be strength training at least once or twice a week, even if you're running. Um, and obviously there's a, there's a certain cost if you're eating like 6,000 calories a day and, and taking like testosterone and, and D ball and stuff and getting big, but like 250 pounds, like running is getting a little bit tougher. Uh, there's, yeah. <laughs> there's obviously costs on the extreme ends. Uh, but in the, the dose that most people are talking of, like, can I strength train a couple times a week and try to put on, you know, 10, 15 pounds of muscle and not, not trash my running career. And to me, that's a nutrition equation anyway. If you're going to want to put on muscle mass while training for endurance, it's not, I, I just don't think it's, it's just not easy to do. And like you ha- <laughs> It's like- not. I mean, <laughs> I always tell people, and so I, I do a lot of work at the, the gym too with like in person training. And if mm-hmm. someone is, you know, saying like, well, I don't want to get too big, or I don't want to put on too much muscle, I want to get bulky. I'm just like, I'm just like look, look out there at all of the people trying so desperately hard <laughs> to, to get big and they're still not, uh, you know, it's, it's a, it's a very challenging thing to do, but to your point, like you can't truly grow um, without a caloric surplus, right? So mm-hmm. you could do all the bodybuilding style training in the world. And if you're eating an isocaloric diet, like hate to break it to, you're not going to get big. Uh, an important point though, I think is that there's still value in hypertrophy training. I'm using air quotes here. Uh, you know, when we think about like typical rep ranges of say eight to 15 reps or so, like that kind of style of training, even if you're not in a caloric surplus and you're not intending to grow, there's still value in that kind of training in terms of some of the other like structural adaptations that can occur in the, the muscles and tendons and, and that kind of thing. So, uh, I do think there's still value in hypertrophy work, even if your goal is not hypertrophy. Uh, and I think a, a lot of people don't realize that there is still some of that value. I like it just for the change in stimulus, right? If just to, just to at least move out of, like we mentioned five by five earlier, I like five through one. That's my jam. That's I'm always, that's my go-to for, for a lot of just like straight strength, but just like come out of that a little bit. Yeah. And like work on a little bit more volume of things. So we can move back into it if, if nothing else, you know? Yeah. But it's, well, I'll, I'll tell people like you want to not only build strength and like your compound movements, say you're, you're using some accessory work, just like build some positional strength or, bring up a lagging muscle or, or whatever your intent is. If you try to do five, three, one on like a leg extension, it doesn't make sense. Like it just doesn't work. Um, you just need so, to like, do 12 reps <laughs> on some stuff, you know? Right. Yeah. So and there, there's definitely value in getting into some other rep ranges and you shouldn't be afraid of like 
well, this is hypertrophy and I don't want to get big. So like, I'm, I'm not going to do this. It's like, you're, you're not eating enough to get big. Like there's, there's still value in what this is doing for like your ability to, to produce force, motor unit command. And uh, like, there's still value outside of, of muscle growth. Yeah. And like, yeah, the horm- you're not, probably not going to get that intense hormonal response from tw- 12 leg extensions either. Right. To the, that's really going right. to help you grow. <laughs> um, that's why I say, I use that kind of same example. I'm like, if, if everybody could just get jacked, there'd be way more jacked people. There's not that many jacked people. No one's that <laughs> right. jacked. Exactly. It takes, lot, it takes a lot of work to do that. Um, yeah, it's, 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 it's going to be interesting to see like where, like how capable people are going to become at running while they're getting bigger. I mean, like Hunter and, and Magida and even Kent to a certain extent, like he's, he's bigger than most, than most runners. And they're doing some pretty impressive things in terms of their running. I, I'm interested in like, you know, you're, you're, you're also, you seem to be interested in like what we're capable of, you know, you have a world record, right. You're going to try to even break that even further. Like, where do you think these, like these worlds collide? Like how, what, like, what do you think we're going to see people do like going into the future? Like we saw what is, what is the dude's name who back squatted 500 and then did a sub five mile. Um, not the same in the same day, but not the same time. I forget what his name was. Yeah. Um, um I'm forgetting his name too. That's uh, I should know it because I've, I've been looking at a lot at a lot of that stuff because that's one of my primary goals for the year uh, is I want to try to do the the 500 and sub five. So yeah, you should try to do it like because that's what the I think Dill Moralia and uh, Hunter have done this too. And I think and um, where they pulled 500 and ran a mile all under five minutes under like one yeah cap. <laughs> you should do that. You should do that for the back squat if you can get your back squat high yeah. enough to that and then do that all under five and then run right into it after five minutes. It'd be, it'd be pretty crazy. Um, I'm actually, it's, it's funny because a lot of people have done the like deadlift 500 and run sub five, uh, but I'm more of a natural squatter in general. Like I yeah, that's not, squat. that's pretty, not yeah. most people, people are not, people would rather be deadlifting, I think. Yeah. Uh, my squat max and deadlift max are about the same. Oh, really? Um, so I, I feel like just getting the, the squat to 500 and run the five mile would be uh, a little more impressive. I think. I think so too. Where do you, where are you at now? You're at, you said you're 420 something. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, per, I much prefer like a weightlifting style squat. So like a, a high bar position on the back, um, huh. more depth, closer stance that just is more comfortable to me when I prefer to train. Um, but I can squat, more of a powerlifting style squat. So low bar position on the back, slightly wider stance, just to, to parallel. I can squat more that way. I still enjoy it as much. I find I'm doing a lot of volume with a low bar squat, my back and the SI joint can flare up a little bit. Hmm. Um, so I, I primarily like train the high bar squat. Um, so it's kind of a weird thing. Like if I really want to squat 500, I'm going to have to do a lot more low bar squatting. Um, I can high bar squat about 405. Low bar is probably in the like 420 to 440 range. Uh, so there's still still a ways to go to to crack 500, um, but I feel pretty confident. That's interesting on the because I recently, I mean my my basically my introduction to weightlifting outside of just like doing whatever I was doing when I was like 22, 23, just like at LA Fitness, just like goofing off type of stuff was CrossFit, and and that is primarily high bar, right? They do everything for. Uh, prepare you for weightlifting. And so I always did high bar until earlier this year, I switched to low bar and it just like made my back squat 
skyrocket. Like it just was such a difference yeah. in terms of the mechanics of how, what was just comfortable for me. Like high bar for me, I don't know what it is. Just like, it's like, it just feels like I'm going to get crushed. I don't know if it's the, like my, the strength in my core or glutes or was just the position of things like my knees start to hurt, but low bar, it's good to go. So I just yeah. think yours is like opposite. And is, is it just like biomechanics? Well, so, so for me, I have, uh, so like the degree to which people will recruit their quads versus their glutes versus their adductors in the squat, uh, comes, it depends on a lot of different biomechanical factors. And for me, if I'm doing a low bar squat, I'm able to recruit my adductors quite a bit more, which is a, a very strong muscle group for me. Um, so I end up, I'm able to move a good bit more weight, um, just because I'm able to get so much more strength out of my adductors low bar. Um, but I'm also kind of a, a weak back squatter so i have a lot more strength in my legs than i do my lower back hmm. um so i find that that tends to be more my limiting factor so if i'm like okay why can't i put more weight on the bar it's usually my my back doesn't want to do it um whereas with the, the high bar squat the more vertical torso angle my back is not as strained and it's more of a, a quad workout so that yeah. tends to be the main reason why i can't put more weight on the bar hmm. um, so for me if i really want to maximize that, that low bar squat i just got to get my my back in shape a little bit more because that tends to be the thing that I end up pushing a little bit too hard and like, okay, that was a great, like great squat, but now my, my back is pretty sore. So just trying to, to work out the kinks there and, and just be smarter about the, the load and volume progression with it. Yeah. And like, and with something like that, like how much time that would have to be like a full thing. Like you'd have to like, yeah, do lots of accessory work to kind of build around that. Once we're starting to get into those numbers into that level of, of lifting, like we're, yeah, what do you see your ultimate goal of training? Like, I know you said you kind of follow your, like, what you're interested in. Like, where do you see yourself going in the next couple of years? Yeah. Um, so I would love, again, to hit that, like, 500-pound squat and sub-five-minute mile just as, like, top-end strength and speed. Um, and I would like to do that while still being able to to go out and just do a lot of the endurance stuff that I have a lot of fun with, um, especially, like, my wife and I like to travel a lot, and we like to do a lot of hiking and, and running and stuff when we're out on, on trips. And it's, it's really fun to be able to go somewhere and do like 20 miles of hiking a day and not be tired. Like mm -hmm. you just get to go out and do so many cool things that like most people they'll like do one big hike like that. And then they're like having to recover afterwards or they're sore and it like, it just makes it not as fun. Um, but you can have so much fun doing that kind of stuff when you have the fitness too. Um, so just for stuff like that, like to be able to go out and, uh, the other couple of years ago, I did a, a 36 mile run around Mauna Kea in Hawaii. And it was just like super, super cool to be able to go out there, self-supported, run 36 miles around a volcano and like have fun with it and not be like, I wonder if I can finish. I wonder if I'm going to die. Like, do I have cell service? Can someone like, you know, not to be worried about any of that stuff and be like, I'm just going to go on a 36 mile, like scenic run and, and have some fun with this thing. Um, I want to be able to still do that kind of stuff. No real like time constraints on it. Like I, I don't I don't necessarily have a goal to like be winning ultras anymore, but just to have the fitness to be able to go out there and do that and, and have fun with it for as long as I can. Just training for life at a high level, just high level <laughs> exactly. life training. That's yeah. cool. That's awesome. Yeah. The 500 squat in five minutes would be really cool. I don't think I've, I've only one person I think I know, I know of has done that. Is a five minute mile pretty attainable for you? Um, yeah. I mean, like my best mile right now, I can probably get a hair under five and, and not, not die too much without um, too much training yeah yeah i mean the fastest mile i ever ran was like a 440 low 440s or something like that um but again 
we've talked about maintenance is easier than, than building, right? So I'm fairly confident on any given day, I could still run like a 459 if I had to. Cool. Yeah. So that, that would be, that'd be a really fun one to, to knock out. Um, well, cool, man. I've really, this has been really fun. Uh, so I know you do some online coaching. So tell us a little bit about that. Like who, what, what kind of athletes are you looking to, to work with and who, who you kind of like work best with? Yeah. Um, so I work with complete human performance. Um, we specialize in, in all forms of hybrid athletes. Um, so some clients that I've worked with include just some of the things we've talked about, like people trying to deadlift 500 pounds and run a sub five minute mile, like some of that kind of stuff. Um, but not everyone's at, at that level of like the extremes either. Um, some people are just like, Hey, I want to be able to run a half marathon and look good. Like that is also a, a hybrid athlete by yeah. our definition. Um, and then a lot of like military, uh, fire police, um, a lot of that kind of stuff. Uh, I'd say one of the biggest, uh, biggest portions of my roster is, is tactical athletes training for like special forces and selection. Um, so I've had a, a lot of people uh, go through some of those programs um, so basically anything where you're like, I need to be able to lift heavy and have endurance, um, anything that falls in, into that bucket, uh, we specialize, specialize at, uh, I personally work with, again, a lot of those like tactical athletes, a lot of OCR athletes. Um, and we have other people on our staff that, that work with a variety of other kind of hybrid athlete types as well. Uh, but if you're interested in, in working with me, uh, you can find me on Instagram at Alec Linus, uh, and I have my link to my website and everything there too. Cool. I'll make sure to link to all that in the, in the show notes. Um, and so you're going to do Murph. Uh, are you going to do it on Memorial Day? Uh, I think M- Memorial Day is a Monday, right? So um, I have it um, actually doing a big in-person event. So it's in, in Long Lake, Minnesota, um, just outside the Twin Cities. Um, can't remember the name of the, the company putting it on. But there's a big outdoor event, actually. You're going to have a couple hundred athletes. Um, so it'll be really cool to actually do that in person. Um, and Sweet. Really- get outside and do it that might be so a little more be... juice for you too yeah that might be <laughs> right? a little bit more motivation getting things going that's going to be sunday may 30th um so looking forward to that i was you know brainstorming the idea of just trying to get some more interest from the ocr community like i don't know try to get hunter to do it again or or some guys to, to come, come, to come out to it yeah come out and do it or even like something virtual i don't know just try to, to drum up some interest make it fun um you know it's always one of my favorite workouts of the year and uh, I know it is for a lot of guys in the OCR and CrossFit community too. So hopefully there's a way we can get something together and all have some fun with it. Get the running public guys out there. They're not that far away. Kirk will oh, yeah. be there in a minute. Get them out yeah, there. Yeah, they should. I'll, I'll get them out there. I, I forgot that they were so close. They're right in the, 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 your Midwest peoples. They're right there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I I think I'm going to do it this year because, I mean, there's – but I, I, with all, with not very much prep though. <laughs> that's the thing it's like it's like I, and i know it'll just like i'll be sore and feel i did it two or three years ago i did it the co- i did 2020 and i did it at this like weird like weird pull-up situation because there was no gyms um and yeah. i was feeling awful for like a week and i was just like sad and i was like why am i so terrible right now it's like oh because i did murph i did murph well, last week. so I'll, I'll say this about the, the preparation side of things i did murph twice last year right so i did it on memorial day uh, kind of tied Hunter's record and then beat it three weeks later. Uh, and I hadn't done a lot of specific prep kind of leading up to that first, first Murph. Uh, and I couldn't straighten my arms the next day. So yeah. that first Murph that I, I did it in 34 minutes, like my bicep tendon was so inflamed. Like I literally couldn't straighten my arms. I was like walking around with my arms up all day long. Uh, and I was pretty wrecked. 
and I didn't change all that much. Like the next three weeks, I just did some more pull-ups. Um, actually did some like direct bicep work to try to load that hmm. in a linking position, um, distal bicep tendon. Um, so I did some of that kind of stuff. The second Murph, so I actually set the record and, and did it two minutes faster than the previous one. I had almost zero soreness. Like I was very fatigued, very huh. tired, but I, I really wasn't all that sore just because I had been hammering those higher up, higher up movements and, and training those positions more, more specifically over that three weeks. So it makes a huge difference. Okay. So then I'll have about two weeks. Like there's a high rocks event that I should be doing. And then there's like two or three weeks until Memorial day. So yeah, maybe I'll just do a Cindy a couple of times. <laughs> then just, yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> just yeah, deal with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then anything else? Any other any other races we'll see yet? Are you going to be doing any of the the Decker High Rock stuff? Um, yes, um, kind of TBD. Um, I haven't picked out which High Rocks or, or Deckers I want to do. I do want to get back into them this year. Uh, just trying to coordinate like other travel and vacations and which ones make sense and and that kind of thing. So I want to get back out there, but TBD on which ones. Yeah, they announced Chicago for the fall in November, I think. Um, okay. That's usually pretty easy for me to get to. Yeah. And they haven't, they haven't really, I thought that they haven't really released any other th- any other dates. Well, well, hopefully we'll see you out there, man. Yeah. Yeah. So, I look forward to, to competing with you again. I think we've only run against each other that one time in Palm Springs. Unless uh, yeah. Palm beach. Yeah. Uh, West yeah, Palm. Oh, Palm, Palm beach, the, yeah. um, yeah, it was just that time. That was the first time that uh, I had come across you. I didn't realize you were like an OCR OG. I think I came in after, like right when you were like kind of on your way out. Like I started okay. like all in on OCR like in 2016. Gotcha. Yeah, between I think, so my first one was 2011. Um, and between 2011 and 2016, I think I did like 150 events or something. <laughs> um, got completely burnt out. I'm like, I could never do a race again and I'd be fine. Um, but you know, a couple of years that go by and you're like, I feel like I'm missing something. I, I got to get back into it. So, um, here we are. Yeah. Those, um, were you part of the pro team at all at the, in like those early years? Yeah. So I was on the, the inaugural pro team. So it was like 2013 to 2014. That seemed like a good deal. That was with like Magida and Bracken and them, right? Yep. Yeah. That, that seemed like a good deal you had back then. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of fun. I Just to be able to travel around the country, like, under no other circumstances could I have, like, afforded to or been able to, like, do 50 races in two years, like, all around the country. Like, I think I competed in, like, 30 states or something. It was, like, just such a super cool experience, like, forever, forever grateful to Spartan for being able to make that happen. Yeah, that, that those those days are long, long behind us in this, this Spartan world. So I'm glad you got to, you were able to capitalize on that. You had a pretty good CrossFit open. What'd you think yeah, about your open? You know, not too bad. Um, you know, CrossFit is one of those things that, um, I'm reluctant to ever call myself a CrossFitter because like, I just don't really train for it specifically. Um, but at the, the gym that I work at, we have a, a great CrossFit program as well. So I like, we'll pop in the class from time to time and like, I'm kind of part of the group, kind of not part of the group. Um, like I coach CrossFit on the weekends, but I'm not a CrossFitter. So I have this like very weird relationship with it. Uh, I'll go in, in spurts and phases of like doing a couple classes a week for a couple weeks and then not touching it again for a while. Um, you know, so I'm like the kind of sort of CrossFitter. Uh, so all that being said, I was actually really happy with, with this year's Open because uh, without a lot of specific prep, um, I think I went from like uh, 
from like 18,000th place last year to 2,000th place this year. So I yeah. moved up on the leaderboard um, quite a bit this year, um, in large part just, just from getting a little bit stronger, um, which you know, I'm, I'm well conditioned in terms of CrossFit standards, uh, but still have a ways to go in terms of strength with certain things. So mm-hmm. the progress I've made just you know, getting a little bit bigger, getting a little bit stronger over the last year really paid off there. Because, I mean, you, have, you seem to have the tools. But, yeah, I mean, like, even at your height, you probably wouldn't need another 15 pounds on you, you think, to be, like, really, like, what those guys are yeah. out there. And so I look at – I was like, has anyone my size ever made it to, like, the CrossFit Games, right? And there's a guy, uh, Scott Tetlow, or Tetlow, I'm not sure how to say his last name. Uh, uh-huh. But he's only 5'3", and he actually made he's it five to the three. CrossFit Games. Um, there's a dude, but he's, Colton Mertens. Have you seen him? I don't think he's very big. I don't know how tall um, – I don't know how much but, he weighs, though. Scott's 5'3", 175. Um, so he's, you know, I'm like 5'5 five, five and a half or something like that. So he's, he's like two inches shorter than me, but an extra 10 to 15 pounds. That's what um, I'm saying. So, you know, if I wanted to compete at that level, I'd probably have to be in the, the ballpark of like 175 or so. Uh, so I don't know if I want to get there or not, um, or if I want to put the time into all the Olympic lifting and that kind of stuff. There's, there's only so many things that I can work on, you know? Yeah, but I feel like you'd be able to figure it out pretty quick. You're like a, you're a, technician in there right i'm sure you would be able to, to, to do it pretty well um yeah, yeah so the dude colton mertens he was a uh he was a games athlete he's 5'4 185 okay so yeah a lot of a lot of muscle on that dude a lot of muscle uh, on that dude so. <laughs> um, um yeah then i actually did a a, a weekend-long crossfit competition the other weekend it was two days it was like six workouts over two days uh, so similar to like what the games are and a lot of these other in-person competitions i did my first one just a couple weeks ago uh extremely competitive event i mean basically all of the top crossfitters um from minnesota and throughout the midwest were there uh, so 24 of us made it into like the, the elite division um and the whole time i kept thinking like i'm just lucky to be in this this division and i got my butt kicked i think i was 17th out of 24 but i was like you know this time last year i couldn't have even made it into this this group of people um so really cool experience um it's always humbling and, and cool to like be one of the, the least fit people in the room, uh, especially <laughs> when you're used to, used to being one of the, the fitter ones. So really cool experience. And I will probably keep doing some of those as well, just cause they are a lot of fun. That, yeah, it'd be cool to see what, what you could, what you could do in that arena. Like how's your gymnastics stuff? Gymnastics is pretty good. Uh, but again, like, so one of the guys at the, the competition, uh, he was one spot away from making the games last year. Uh, another guy is actually the fittest man in Sweden, so he won the Open in Sweden uh, wow. last year. And he what was, was the dude's name who uh, well. just missed it. What was the dude who just missed the games? Um, Nick Matthew. Um, so he okay. made it to regionals um, or to, to Granite Games. They take top five in Granite Games, yeah. And he was sixth place at Granite Games. Um, wow. So he had some some really really strong athletes. And I remember looking at some of the workouts. There was one that was um, deadlifts and rope climbs. And I was like, okay, I'm I'm really good at these two movements. Um, like I should theoretically crush this one. Um, and so I, I go and I was like second place in my, my heat for it. I was like, okay, I think I, that was my event. Like I, I crushed it. Um, and then I watched Nick Matthew go and do the workout in the heat after me and just demolish me. And like, why well, don't even know where the time came from? It's you know? <laughs> like, like completely impossible. Right. That um, is how those CrossFitters seem. It's like, how are they doing wall balls so much faster than me? This seems like a thing that should just be like one speed. Like these people are right. ridiculous. Well, yeah, this, this workout was uh, basically back and forth between deadlifts and rope climbs. And like all of my deadlifts were unbroken. I ran to the rope. I'm good at rope climbs. Like 
you know? And then this guy, like I did the workout like three and a half minutes and he did it in two and a half. I'm like, I don't even know where the minute <laughs> like, It just is, is unbelievable, you know? It's crazy. It's crazy yeah. like that to that level for sure. You did some of the regional workout or the quarterfinal workouts, right? Yeah. So I've actually been, I've been dealing with like a, a nagging shoulder injury, which has been kind of pissing me off through the, the open process and then that, that weekend uh, CrossFit competition. Uh, so it, it had been bugging me and I was going through the, some of the quarterfinals workouts and one of the workouts where I had to do the, the overhead squat, I was like, this just is not happening for me today. Mm -hmm. um, so I kind of bailed on the quarterfinal workouts thinking, why make my shoulder even worse when I'm, I'm definitely not going anywhere with this one. Um, so I, I bailed on that one. I'll get back into it next year. But right now my priority is just making sure my shoulder's healthy for Murph. And then there was the, the last one was the 185 snatches. How's that for you? Would you be able to? to... That, that's my, my worst thing. So like last year, um, and again, I, I work on snatches extremely sporadically. Last year, I wouldn't have been able to do it. Uh, my one at max last year was maybe like 165, and I got yeah. up to 190 this year. Um, so I potentially so could have done 10 reps at 185. Early. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it would have been tough. Um, but that's the thing that needs the most work is, is the Olympic lifting. It's my biggest weak link as far as CrossFit goes. Takes so much time, man. That's like yeah. all your aerobic. Well, that's the thing. Your aerobic work would probably have to then be snatch technique right. stuff. Well, and especially at my body weight, like for me to be competitive in the CrossFit arena at the level I would want to be, I would need to snatch in the like 250 to 275 range at a minimum. And at my body weight, I mean, that's a, that's a national class weightlifter. Um, so like <laughs> right. to, to, to try to get to that level at, at another sport, you know, on top of everything else is a, a huge undertaking. It's pretty crazy. I mean, it gives you just an appreciation for what those guys are doing. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. But I'll tell you, I'll bust that ass in a 5k. All right. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Like if they could just throw in like a five mile run at one of these CrossFit competitions and clean up, you know, <laughs> be great. I know they put them on at the game sometimes. Like there was a workout last year. It was like mile and a half run. or it was like 30 toes to bar, mile and a half run, 30 toes to bar, mile and a half run. I was like, I would definitely win a CrossFit games workout, but yeah, I would well, never be there to a, see. They had the, the Murph actually. They've had it a, a bunch like, of times, twice. twice or, games. Yeah. One time they did it on the beach and it was, this was years ago with like, there was a swim involved too, and then they did Murph. So they've done variations yeah. of it. Anyway, they yeah, two years back to back. Murph the, <laughs> put Murph in one of the like qualifying workouts or something. That would, that would be great too, <laughs> for sure. Um, all right, cool. Well, again, I appreciate the time. I'm just gonna hit stop. We'll head back to that first screen. So I'll make sure to link to all of the show notes, uh, all to your website, into the uh, Insta and all that. Um, so I appreciate you taking time, man. Perfect. Yeah, I really appreciate it too. Um, I'm actually excited. I, I just got a message from. Uh, one of the guys from Spartan, we're going to do a, another interview and stuff talking about Murph too. So kind of cool to see like people get interested in Murph again around this time of year. So um, I appreciate you kicking things off. You're the subject matter expert of Murph. <laughs> well, thanks, man. Uh, hopefully we can do this again sometime.